Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A6NZ podcast. Today's episode is hosted by A6NZ co-founder Ben Horowitz, interviewing special guest Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan pioneered high-end streetwear in the early 1980s, remixing luxury brand logos into his own designs for gangsters, athletes, and musicians, dressing cultural icons from Eric B. and Rakim to Jay-Z. He went on to define an era, and his work has been featured in exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art, the Met, the Smithsonian, and more. But Daniel R. Day, a.k.a. Dapper Dan, began as a hungry, fast learner in Harlem who became a gambler, spent a brief stint in a foreign jail where he nourished himself with reading, and then studied the market to build his business, rising to the top, falling to the bottom, and rising again, reinventing himself over and over. The conversation is based on an event that we hosted for the launch of his memoir, Made in Harlem, where throughout, Dapper Dan shares inspiration for all kinds of makers, from the struggle, especially when not given the privileges and opportunities that others have, to the power of studying the game and the power of listening to your customers, but not in a typical way, to what cultural influence and leadership really means, especially because, quote, you cannot be in it and not be of it. It is a story of the OG hustler and spans 70 years, with the first 30 minutes of this episode focused on his growing up in Harlem, visiting Africa, and cultural influences at the time, and then 30 minutes in, going into his trend setting in fashion, including the concepts of logomania and later, influencer marketing. And finally, the story ends where it begins, with reopening his boutique and his partnership with Gucci, which involved the power of voice, including that of Black Twitter. So I'd, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out. And this is probably one of the most difficult introductions that I've ever had to do, because how do I explain Dapper Dan? That's like almost impossible. And, you know, I didn't know who Dapper Dan was really. I knew Dapper Dan, but I didn't know until I read the book, uh, Dapper Dan Made in Harlem. And so I thought to introduce him, there were a couple of things that were sent to me leading up to the event uh, that were like right on point. We put like a tweet out and uh, this came tweeted back from David Doswell. Is David Doswell here? Oh, all right. What's happening? Thanks for coming out. So he tweets, such a legend. When I was young, I thought his name was a term. I didn't know he was a person. <laughs> and then the second one is uh, from my business partner, Mark Andreessen. You guys know Mark? Yes. Soft Reads the World. He invented the browser, all that. So Mark's from Wisconsin, and he didn't really know anything about uh, Dapper Dan until he read the book. And um, he sends me this. He says, I read Dapper Dan's book. I got a couple of reactions. One, he is an actual entrepreneur and an innovator, parentheses, tech twice over, once screen printing onto leather, the other using a hospital badge machines to fabricate credit cards. <laughs> Number two, similarly, in another life, he'd have a major national global apparel brand by now worth billions of dollars. And I was like, yeah, that's right. So that's Dapper Dan. And without further ado, I welcome Dapper Dan. Thank you. All right, well, let's get into it. So the book starts with Harlem in the 50s. And that was a, like a very different Harlem the Harlem that you grew up in, then the Harlem that came after it, and for sure the Harlem of today. So, so what was that like? 
Well, the Harlem that I grew up in is, was a village. Now the Harlem you find today is like a, a little city. Yeah. The difference between a village and a little city is like, I grew up, I'm the first generation of the great migration that came from the South. So when, I, when my family, my mom and my pop got to uh, Harlem, they were still, and this sounds crazy, they were yeah. still horses and buggies in the street. Wow, so cars hadn't quite gotten there. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't many, but they were there. All the neighborhoods was comprised of mostly in Harlem, even though it was sectional. Mm -hmm. You see, like, one, this neighborhood here, everybody be from a particular part of the South, mm -hmm. and the next neighborhood a particular part. Huh, so people knew each other, so that's yeah, a different I kind think, of community. I think the most warming thoughts that I have of Harlem then is like 11 o'clock Sunday morning. 11 o'clock Sunday morning, you see everybody leaving out their houses, mm -hmm. everybody converges on the church. Oh, wow. And my family went to the church. We had a little storefront church we used to go to. The congregation was like 23 people, and <laughs> yeah. 18 of us was in the same family. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we called it Hallelujah Sunday, because you know, even though we was poor, I think um, yeah. nothing made me feel as good as you know, leaving church on Sunday. You yeah. know, we was poor, so food wasn't plentiful back then, but we used to, uh, you know, after church, you get them meals. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, get them. And, and today, that still goes on today. Like, the big churches on Sundays, they still help, they serve meals. But uh, you know what? The most significant thing about Harlem that you won't see today in Harlem was that I grew up with uh, the diversity. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't even realize how diverse Harlem was until I began to travel like places like Detroit, Chicago, and, like, right. and uh, like, I always had different ethnic groups as friends of mine, you know? And I think that cultural pot, that like gumbo of, of, of culture was what made Harlem the way it is. So then, you know, your father came to Harlem um, when he was just 12 years old. My father, yeah. You know, it's like, it's hard to imagine because we tend to think that you know, slavery was a long time ago, but you know, it's been like maybe 153 years. Mm -hmm. And my father left home when he was 12 years old. My father was born in 1898. That's 33 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. My father's father was born a slave and later free. So when my father came wow. here, this is the Reconstruction era in 1910 when my father came to Harlem. He was 12 years old, but at 12 years old, and 10 and 12 years old, young blacks was leaving the South because they didn't want to put up with that. And that's yeah. what made Harlem so unique. In every aspect, what made Harlem unique is that we had the most revolutionary spirited people that you could find, the ones who were not going mm -hmm. to tolerate like the Jim Crow and, right, right. and the hangings and things that, would, that was taking place in the South at that time. And so do you think that's one of the things that made Harlem such a center of culture was that the people who came out were the people yeah. of the strongest will, the I tend to look, people coming out to Harlem? Yeah, when you look at, when you look at like the, what happened to us with the slave trade, first you, you get captured. Uh, I read in LaRue, yeah. uh, and before the Mayflower, they talked about sharks used to pick up the slave ships on the coast of Africa and just follow them across the ocean. And that's how many slaves were thrown off. So you had to survive that middle passage. Then, you had to, then your family had to survive 300 years of slavery, right? 
And then you had to tolerate the Jim Crowism. And so we had the most strongest blacks that were leaving the South to go North. So I'm a product of those powerful people. So when, yeah. when I got, when the people who were in Harlem was the, the ones that stayed and, were, and put up with it, that mm -hmm. wouldn't go back, they, was really, they were really the strongest of the strong. Yeah. So I learned from the, the people who were the best hustlers <laughs> and people like my fathers who were right. the best, best workers. Because my father worked 15 years straight for the city and he was, uh, he was never absent and he was late once and that was the great snowstorm of 47. <laughs> wow, <laughs> nobody was at work that day. And, and that's because he, he walked to work and was, snow was deep. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And you and your father had a, an incident that changed your life in Ripley's department store. Oh, yeah, that was like... You were a kid. Growing up, like, even a, well, a, a neighbor down the street from me used to laugh at us a lot because they was just doing slightly better than us. And um, a lot of the times I had holes in my shoes, man. So we used to put paper in, in our shoes to keep our feet from touching the ground. Oh, okay. Then we got more innovative. We stopped using linoleum because it lasts longer, oh, right? Yeah. But one, one day, man, my feet was hurting so bad because the borders of the shoe mm -hmm. could not no longer hold, hold linoleum in, right? Yeah. So I think I was like about eight. And I come home and say, Mom, my feet is killing me. Mom, my feet is killing me, man. And before my mother could say anything, my brother was there. He said, don't worry, Ma. He said, come on. I go with my brother, and we walk four blocks. And we, I never forget, we walk four blocks from 129 no, to, to 124, four or five blocks. He turned the corner, and it was a Goodwill there. So we went in the Goodwill, and my brother said, you see any shoes you like? I saw some nice mahogany split toes with the tassel. I yeah. said, I like them right there. <laughs> he, said, he said, try them on. I said, they feel good. <laughs> he said, okay, pick your shoes up. I, I picked my shoes up. He said, put them in the rack. <laughs> I put them in the rack. He said, let's go. <laughs> That probably wasn't fair man. trade there. Oh, boy. I, never, I will yeah. never forget that. Yeah. But, you know, as years time, you know, all, all our clothes was hand-me-down, right? Yeah, yeah. But my brother, right older than me, he always got the first pick, mm -hmm. you know? So he had the best clothes from Goodwill, right? Yeah. So I wanted to go to school, man. I wanted to be fly, you know? I, want, I really wanted to be sharp as I could stand up in front of school with the girls and everything in front of the candy store. <laughs> but my brother wouldn't let me wear his clothes, right? Mm. So I had to sneak him out. And he got to the point where he would sit by the door where I had to go out, so I couldn't walk out with his clothes on. <laughs> so what I did, I had my, my two best friends. Steal clothes. But my two best friends, Herman <laughs> and Thurman, I told Herman and Thurman, wait outside the window. <laughs> and I would take his clothes and I'd drop them outside the window. <laughs> and I'd go in the hallway and change them, right? But then, um, by the time I'm 13 now, right, my father's gonna take me to get my first suit. I'll never forget that, no. No, 13, I was already hustling, about 11 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so we was going to Ripley, Ripley department store, and my father's gonna buy me a suit on credit, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, wow, I saw a charcoal brown suit with, with pinstripes. I said, Daddy, you gonna get me? He said, yeah, okay. He said, um, he gonna pay on credit, but I had just learned mathematical equations to tell, you know, interest time rate and see mm -hmm. how much he's gonna pay. And then when I read the contract, I said, 
Daddy, don't buy it. This is going to cost you. They're going to charge you two and a half times what the suit worth. You know? Mm -hmm. So we're coming down the steps from the store. And this is, this is the moment that changed my life. And we're coming down the steps from the store. And my father stopped me. And he looked in my eyes. I saw the, the tears well up in my father's eyes. And he said, boy, don't you know you can read? You can read, boy. You can read. But, I, you know, I'm saying... I'm seeing how emotionally getting, I'm seeing the tears well through that. But what, what happened was my father only went to the third grade and he had yeah. to teach himself how to read. Because right. you gotta know during during times of slavery and back then, you know, it was against the law to teach the slaves how to read. You right. know? And right. my father only got to go to the third grade, so he had to teach himself how to read. Mm -hmm. yeah. And from that point on, I learned something. I said, man, no matter what happened or what kind of fix I get in, I'ma read my way out of it. And that ended up being the key to yeah. almost everything you did after that. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into hustling? <laughs> life, life, is about, life is about the tools that you get based on how you come up, you know? Yeah. It was seven of us, me and six siblings, and my mom and dad, and uh, three bed, three had, three had three bedrooms, you know? So my father, in, in all the relationships, like we have a, people that's, that's auntie, so-and-so, but you know, it's just that, it wasn't a blood relationship, but the communal relationship that you take on those titles, right? But the ones that were in my neighborhood, they were all hustlers. My father's the only one who wasn't a hustler, right? Mm -hmm. But my father used to have poker games, what we call rent parties. A rent party, <laughs> a rent party is, is a circle of people. This one week, this, give, this one give a party, have mm -hmm. a poker game, you know, have red rice, chicken, collard greens, mm -hmm. and they sell dinners, you know, yeah. like that. So when my father, when they gave their poker game, and I used to stay up, and my, every time my father went a, went a hand, this is the first time I was exposed to gambling. Every time my father went a hand, he'd take all the change and put it in my pocket, and I'd just stand there, <coughs> I couldn't stand up no more. And, 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 let it, and take it away. So the first exposure I got to anything was like gambling. And I hmm. became a real proficient like that. But I had an uncle, Eddie Henry, it's just him and my mother, right? Mm -hmm. Eddie Henry had, went, had ran away yeah. when he was young and he, joined, he had joined the circus. And was one of them oh, guys. Wow. Yeah, one of them guys. That Join the circus. circus. I mean, this is yeah. that era. <laughs> I've heard like that story, but I never knew he, anybody did yeah, that. Yeah, he was a handyman. They had him doing like running errands. Yeah. But he was he um, hooked up with the um, the uh, the magician. Talk him, told him all these kind of tricks with the cards. Hmm. <laughs> so Eddie Henry taught me them tricks. <laughs> so those tricks helped me out later on in life. Y'all yeah. hear a lot about them tricks later. <laughs> So anyway, the Harlem that I grew up in, we are, I'm the last product of a generation that saw Harlem without a drug epidemic. I'm growing up in the 50s. The drugs epidemic didn't hit to the 60s. Okay. So the first part of Harlem, you see, was like numbers, the number game mm -hmm. policy that used to take place. And everybody used to bet on numbers. And then it was like, they had people who was like, uh, had uh, maybe drinking problems, but they were um, functional. Right. It was nowhere near like the, like the drugs were. Then in the 60s when the drugs hit, and then we start seeing all the drug dealers with all this money, all the shiny things that we wish we right. had. Yeah. And then yeah. They, we started drifting away. 
right. drifting away. And then a drug, it went from a, num the street game, the street thing went from a number culture to a drug culture. And that's when Harlem changed. Right. We never used to have to lock our doors. Nobody locked their doors until the drug epidemic hit. And that changed the whole complexion of Harlem. And I got caught up in that because of the, uh, the lore. Me and all my brothers, my sisters never did nothing wrong, but me and all my brothers got hooked up, caught up in that. And um, I remember it was June 19th, 1967. I got busted for, for selling drugs. I got out three months later with probation, September 27, 1967. The, one of the assassins, alleged assassins for Malcolm X was in there, Johnson 3X Butler, right? Yeah. And when I, what I observed, he was in lower A1, I was in upper A4, so it was tears, and we had to pass by. And um, I saw all the respect that this man used to get and the way they treated him. And did he get respect for allegedly killing Malcolm X, or was it, it was a different, a different It was thing? a different time. Like Malcolm X today, the Malcolm X these young people in here know today, at the time was, uh, there was a schism that was taking place in the nation of Islam, right? Mm -hmm. So to the Bulgar people, when Elijah Muhammad was still alive, Malcolm X was considered a traitor. Martin Luther King was considered an Uncle Tom. So hmm. history has showed that that wasn't true. It's just that these men chose a path that was the right path to choose. They were uh, like idolized then because people didn't really know what happened. But anyway, the story is like when I saw that respect he got, I said, I might go to jail again, but I will never go to jail for doing anything like that to my people. Yeah. And, that, and that's what changed my life. Right. So that was, night, that was 1967. When I got out, I went back to school. I was 23 then. Huh? Mm -hmm. and I, I uh, went back to school, high school. That was like murder, being on the bus, going from home. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, because yeah, yeah. I'm seeing the young kids that I'm going to high school with, doing the, making the same mistakes I'm making. I'm coming out of it, and I'm seeing them go into it. I said, oh, man, it was hell. So um, and I started writing for a newspaper, 40 Acres and a Mule, a student yep. newspaper. And then um, I got real revolutionary, and I, I said, you know what? I, I had, from writing for 40 Acres and a Mule, I was offered a scholarship over the summer of 68 as an intern at Columbia University. Either I take that huh. or I can go to Africa and okay. study in Africa so you, with 40 Acres of the Mule. Scholarship to Columbia, go yeah. to Africa with 40 yeah, Acres Yeah, but I want to go to Africa. Um, Dr. Henry Clark. <laughs> <laughs> I want to find out what happened. So Dr. Henry Clark said, one day he said at the paper, right, you know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as victims all the time. So one of the... Uh, me and one of the uh, students, we, we always have these conferences every week with a different scholar, Dr. Henry Clark, Dr. Ben Jockerman, you know, all kinds mm -hmm. of scholars used to come through. And so Dr. Henry Clark, he's the one who mentored Malcolm. Ah. So he's in, at the paper one day, and one of the students like myself on the editorial board asked Dr. Henry Clark, he said, um, if we are the first people on the planet and we're the chosen people, why are we going through what we're going through today? Mm -hmm. And Dr. Henry Clark says, that's because of a transgression we made before Europeans came into our life. He never elaborated on that. So when I was going to Africa, I went looking for what he was talking about. <laughs> you know what? That took a little bit of the anger away, mm -hmm. you know, and gave, it gave me like a focus. I'm going to find out what's wrong. 
-hmm. Because what was, whatever it is that's wrong might be what's wrong with me. Right. And when I say me, us. So I had to figure out a way to get to that. So when I went to Africa, I traveled like, it was fortunate for me. I'm in Harlem, Martin Luther King is alive, Malcolm X is alive, all that energy. I go to Africa, I'm in Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah with the Pan-Africanism movement, it just got disposed. Right. Then I get to Tanzania, Nyeri is, in, is governor, is, a, is the president, and I get to Kenya, Jomo Kenyatta is the governor. Right. So I got all this energy and we study in African history. I stayed at, in Tanzania, I stayed at Kurosini International School where they were training South Africans to fight in South Africa. So we were, um, we were like a really radical group. And even the um, Urban League had gathered money, had gotten Pan American Airlines to donate the airfare for the seven countries we was going to hmm. visit in Africa to, yeah. to us. And when we got to the airport, they didn't, the, the State Department, I mean, the United States government, didn't know how radical we were. Mm-hmm. So when we got to the airport, <laughs> uh-uh. the State Department put pressure on Pan American Airlines, and they canceled our reservations. Oh, wow. They withdrew the reservations, but then a, a black uh, philanthropist put up the money at the last minute so that we can go on this trip to Africa. Do you know who that philanthropist was? They no, they, I, just, we never found out who wow. he was. I guess he didn't want the State Department to know. <laughs> <laughs> so when we, get to the, when we get to the first leg of the trip, in Ghana, Accra, Ghana, our passports disappeared, right? And the passports turned up at the State Department, at the United States Embassy. So we go there to pick it up. We didn't find out till later on that it was a CIA agent following us around. You oh, know, yeah, because yeah. this was the time, area, yeah, 1968, was, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, young Google, black yeah. radicals wasn't going to Africa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, so, not, not without us. Yeah. Plus, escort. when you if you go to the library and you read Forty Acres and a Mule and you yeah. you, you can see that the Schoenberg Library on microfilm and mm. you see the things that we were talking about. Mm. To give you an example, I wrote an article in 1968 when they was building the State Building, the State Building in Harlem. Mm-hmm. In 1968, I did a study on that State Building and found out what this plan was about. Constant Baker Motley had mentioned that plan earlier, but the state building was the first building they was going to put in Harlem to start gentrification taking place. So I had got a prototype of that state building, and I put it on the front page of 40 Acres of the Mule, and I made it look like a Trojan horse, (laughs) you know, to let people in in Harlem know. And this is 52 years ago, to let people in Harlem know that gentrification is coming to Harlem. And when you go to Harlem today, you see gentrification done kicked in. So that's how radical we were and how advanced we was. And we were all young, like all from being 18 to 23, but we had so much energy. We had all these revolutionary and these Dr. Ben Jockerman, all these um, scholars coming in and um, talking to us. Now, when you were in Africa for the fight in Zaire, which was later. Oh, yeah, that was uh, really interesting. I went back to Africa on my own in 1968 because I went with a group. Mm-hmm. And when we went with that group, it wasn't no uh, hotel things. We stayed with families. Mm-hmm. We did live-ins, everything like that there, you know? So 1973, I went back and because they had the... Uh, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, the yeah. rumble in the jungle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my hustling skills kicked in. Wasn't selling drugs, but I was a professional gambler then. So I go back to Africa for the fight. George Foreman gets busted in the head. 
You know what I mean? In training. Fact, in training. Yeah, That's yeah. not when Ali While busted him in the head. Yeah, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> While he was yeah. training. So uh, I said, man, I got to stay here a month and a half, wait for him to get well. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I might have just traveled around again. Yeah. So I stayed in um, Zaire for a while. Then I went to um, back to Lagos, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And then from Lagos, Nigeria, I went to Liberia. And so, uh, and that's in, in Monrovia, Liberia, I had uh, a Fulani Taylor. And um, that's where the whole concept for me um, getting involved in fashion. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to tell that story. So, come back. I'm hustling again. It's like, like as I mentioned earlier, you, you get these tools when you grow up poor, and you use these tools. But as you move along, you start learning things. But um, in 1968, when I came back from Africa, I was in the Panther Party, Nation of Islam. The Panther Party had got really radical. You know, we, they had us like, we would have to study the Battle of Algiers, where young people was kick, kicking the dope dealers down the steps and right. just cleaning up right. the city. Uh, and at that time, it was the uh, drug dealers was considered the bloodsuckers of the poor. Mm-hmm. Those are the reasons that we were doing so bad. So the people, Nation Islam was moving on the drug dealers. Panther Party was moving on them. Then Father, the head of the uh, Five Percenter, all of them was zeroing in on the, the problem with right. drugs because that's, that's what had the devastating effect. The reason that they were doing that because everyone during this time knew mm-hmm. what Harlem was like before drugs. But the second generation that grew up with a drug culture don't understand what we were like before that happened. I refused to go back and get drawn into that. So that's when I, I, um, I got into what is called, let me give you an idea what, 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 what you learn in Harlem, in the streets. You learn the paper game, that's credit cards and checks. You learn how to do that illegally. The paper, the con game, that's, you know, everybody know what that is. You, everybody in here been conned some kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> yeah, the con game, you know what I mean? And um, so these are all, all the things that, that we, <clears throat> we learned from professionals. So I definitely wasn't going to get involved with um, anything that's going to be detrimental to the community. So I said, you know what? I'm going to study this paper game. Yeah. Yeah, the paper game. So I devised credit cards. Yeah, credit cards and everything. So I devised this method by which um, I create my own credit cards. Yes. Yeah. So I was a bank official. (laughs) (laughs) Me and my friends, all of us Muslim, but broke away from Nation of Islam for the same reason. I never accepted the concept of a biological devil. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't suitable for me in Nation of Islam. I couldn't accept that part. Mm-hmm. So we come across this credit card scheme, so I'm the one who initiated the scheme. So now we, we go in country uh, hopping. Catch a plane here, we go to, we go to St. Thomas, St. Croix, Aruba, Venezuela. You're spending these folks' money like it belongs to us. Yeah. <laughs> we leave Barbados and we go to Venezuela, and we're in Venezuela, and some soldiers pull the guns out on us, right? And I'm looking at Khalid, and his face is getting all excited. I said, damn, what's wrong? I'm, I don't even know what's wrong. I, don't, I wanted to know why the soldiers was taking us into the bush anyway. Yeah. He said, man, they was gonna kill us and rob us. So I got, we got back in the car, we went back to the airport. Yeah. <laughs> that was the second warning. <laughs> now we get to Aruba, right? Then all of a sudden, 
I'm trying to call my friend and I can't get them. And then I see these cop cars, rawr, rawr. then we, we figured it out, they're looking for us. <laughs> they had already got one of the two friends, so I didn't know where to go. I'm on an island, I didn't know where to go. So I started ripping up all the, yeah. all the receipts and I'm on the beach ripping up the receipts. Next thing I know, they pull up on us and I didn't, and I didn't, um, I didn't see freedom for nine months. Right. Man, you do not want to get in trouble in a foreign country, please. <laughs> Please. And so uh, for nine months, all I did was read, read, yeah. read, because that was my out. Read, read, read. When I got out of that there, then I became more proficient at that. Mm -hmm. More proficient at the paper game. I got really proficient, and I made a lot of money. So and then the paper game ended up, like, weirdly leading you into the fashion game. Yeah, I used to make, uh, everybody listen, uh, what's it? Know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk uh, away, and know when to Kenny, run. Kenny Rogers, you never yeah. count your money <laughs> while you're sitting at the table. There'll be plenty of time for counting when the deal is done. Yeah. That was my philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> so uh, after I made the money, I told everybody who was down with me, man, quit that. And I you were knew, up on the laws, too, though. So huh? you, knew, you, were up, you knew there was new legislation coming, too, that was going to make the paper game. Yeah. More but, dangerous. Yeah. The banking system had not figured it out yet. Yeah. You right. Know, so there was this loophole. And even if you got caught, you would get just 90 days. You but we never even got caught. Making credit cards. So, but when they changed the law, I said, that's it. I ain't yeah. doing that no more. And you never go back when you do something wrong. But while all this is taking place, I'm doing all this spiritual reading. Yeah. And so my mind is constantly changing. My <laughs> mind is constantly changing. And I'm looking for a way to... to to really fit into society, you don't want to, I just want to be, I just want to be regular, I just want to be normal, I just want to be, uh, you know, buy into this American idea. Okay. But what's also working on in my head is the, all these, you know, the fact that I didn't have the privileges and the opportunities that other people had. Right. So after the paper game, I buy me a brand new Mercedes Benz, <laughs> paid $42,000 cash, yeah. you know, <laughs> with with paper from the paper game? From, from the paper game. <laughs> and um, then I said, um, I'm going to drive around for a while and figure out what I want to do. <laughs> and then uh, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I know all the gangsters. I'm going to open up a store and sell to them. And with the gangsters, you knew they had money and like clothes in a way. You knew about that market where nobody else did. Yeah, I knew. All, every yeah. gangster in Harlem, I knew them because I used yeah. to break them. Yeah. They used to call me Gambling Danny. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I studied everything. I learned from the best, that were, the best gamblers that was in Harlem, and then I read all the books on gambling so that I can have a, a, right. a, even a better perspective. And I read um, yeah. John Scani. John Scani was a world authority on gambling. Mm -hmm. I read all his books. Yeah. And when it came to hustling, I read uh, Hustling and Con Men. He studies and, the hustle game like Master. people can study you, the computer science game. <laughs> Look, listen here. If you want to get an inside look of what my mindset was and what my skills was, watch the movie with um, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, The Sting. The Sting, yeah. The movie, you got 10 Academies War. And if you could pick up on the move that they made in The Sting, then you're a gifted hustler. It gives you uh, an idea of what the hustlers who came out of the South was like, right? Yeah. And it involves gambling, and it involves a con game. It's the epitome of everything you want to know about the inner workings of the streets and how other things other than drugs, how you can make money. 
So in this thing, right, this is, this is an older black guy. So the black guy, he dies. He can never play. He can never make the big sting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was always his goal to make the big sting. Yeah. So when Robert Redford and Paul Newman come, he say, man, y'all white. Y'all can make the big sting. You know? And one of the guys he conned had killed him. So Robert Redford is going to avenge that. And then the whole plot emerges from them. But the sting comes right out of the book. Hustlers and conmen, so you can get a really good view of that if you want to know what Dapper Dan, that portion of Dapper Dan's life was like. <laughs> I'm a good guy. It's just that this is what happened to my life. If you march backwards in my history, the, this was what's opening to me. This is the advances I could make. I took advantage of all the opportunities that were available to me. This is not an apology. This is the, so that you understand me. Anyway, so fashion. So I, I thought that I could go and open up a store. I said, you know what? People with high aspirations, they want everybody to know that they're moving up the ladder. Yeah. So hustlers and everybody like that, especially hustling. Yeah. The main thing they used to like is furs, diamonds, mm -hmm. and gold, right. Right? right? So I know I couldn't mess with them diamonds and them gold, Mike, because that's a whole new study I got to go into there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So what I did was I started reading everything that I could find out about furs, right, right. right? So it just so happened, I left the paper game, but there's two guys that's still in the paper game, right? Mm -hmm. They use check, uh, certified check machines. Right. And so when people like yourself want to sell your old fur, <laughs> and you advertise in the paper, they say, yeah, we'll buy it. And then you show up with your fur and you get one of the special made certified <laughs> checks. <laughs> Yeah. You, you hear that, you need to take Bitcoin, Venmo, something else, don't take that safe. All right, so um, I'm with these guys, so they're going to sell me the furs, all right? So they yeah. had the furs, they bring them to me, they take them out of the lining, right? Go they down traded into the, the, the huh? big check for. Yeah. Yeah. So I go down the fur district. This is when I meet Irvin Chakins, my Jewish yeah. friend. So Irvin Chakins takes the furs out, and I say, hold up, man. Maybe I need to be making these furs with you. Yeah. Instead of me buying hot furs. So oh, me yeah. and every chick is hooked up. Yeah. I started reading everything and studying everything with the fur game. And then what I did was I um, did my research and it was only three black furriers in the, in the country. It was one called, uh, he was the most popular, the black mm -hmm. furrier uh, in New York and it was two in Chicago. And I yeah. went and visited all of them, see how their operation mm -hmm. worked. And I come back and I started doing the furs. But um, what I thought was that I, I would be able to buy and every place other clothes, when I wanted to do other clothes, mm -hmm. but all the manufacturers I went to that sold luxury goods would not sell to me. Okay. And why, and they, they just wouldn't sell to you, because they, they, they just you wouldn't just sell to me. You uh -huh. like, That's it. I'm not going, you know, yeah. all I can say is yeah. that they sold yeah. to people who wasn't my color, so yeah. that was the intention. <laughs> so anyway, so that wasn't working out for me, but the furs was working out for me, but furs is a seasonal item, right? So yeah. I'll start going to this, uh, uh, a furrier in New Jersey called a fur factory and he was selling furs to me, another Jewish guy. Mm -hmm. He was selling furs to me and I was doing good off those furs, right? He said, listen, my son and, his, and my nephew are opening up this company mm -hmm. and they're going to be making leather jackets. I said, oh, okay, oh, cool. Yeah. He said, go see him. His son and his nephew is Andrew Mark. They cool. They was almost like young yeah. black guys. I said, yo, what's up? <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> no, they was cool like that. Yeah. So we... Um, 
I'm, I'm buying these leather jackets with the opossum lining from them, right? Yeah. Opossum. So I'm paying $400 for the, for the jackets, and I'm selling them for eight. My competition was the most popular store in Harlem called A.J. Lester's. A.J. Lester's is selling the same coat for $1,200. Yeah. So I'm smoking them, right? Yeah. <laughs> One day, a guy comes with his friend who had already bought one from A.J. Lester's, and he was proving to his friend these are the same coats. So he yeah, came yeah. to me where he got his from, right? Right. He said, I told you, man, that guy got so hot, he went over to A.J. Lester's and had a fit. Oh, yeah. A.J. Lessons goes down to Andrew and Mark and tell Andrew and Mark, if you sell the Dapper Dan, I'm not buying from you anymore. Oh, so they cut off the supply. You know, when I go down to re-up, down to Andrew Mark's and I'm to, to get some more jackets, they say, Dap, we got a problem, man. I can't sell to you no more because A.J. Lessons say, if I sell you, then they won't buy from me no more. They have six stores. You only have one. Yeah. I said, oh, man. I didn't even, you know, I didn't even debate the issue with them because they told me, well, we will let you continue to buy, but you got to take the label out. You know the label is everything. Yeah, yeah, you can't You know? That. So you I got mad, and I just no. left, and I came uptown. Now, when I left, <laughs> when I was on that trip in Africa, and I was in Monrovia, Liberia, I went down to buy me some artifacts, and when I was buying these artifacts, right, you gotta like the way I dress, and all, cause I was, you know, super fly. Yeah. He said, I like. Still the way, are. Yeah. He said, I like the way you. He said, I like what you got on. I said, I like the motherfuckers. I said, you want to trade? He said, yeah. I went up and got all my luggage. I took every all the clothes that I took on the trip with me. I came back down to the marketplace, and I exchanged all my clothes for artifacts and for him to make me clothes, you know, with African style material, but. Harlem style cuts, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. how I came back, and that always stayed with me. So yeah. when Andrew Mark and them did that, I said, you know what, man, hold up, I'm gonna, look, I'm gonna figure out how to do this myself. So I'm downtown and some uh, Senegalese Africans selling uh, from from, from mm -hmm. Senegal, Wolos, and they're selling this stuff on the street. I gave them my card. I said, you know anybody? So tell them come see me. Yeah, right. And so first I got one. Then I got two, then I got four, then eight, right? I, I was up to 23 tailors. All right? from Senegal. Yeah, all from Senegal. Right. I'll never do that again. <laughs> so anyway, so I had these Senegalese tailors, and um, I need something new, right? Now, I'm working with furs, I'm working with leather, and a guy comes into the store one day, and he got a, a Louis Vuitton pouch. And was that that's little man? Yeah, yeah, little man. This was the kingpin in Harlem. The guy was ja <laughs> the guy was Jack Jackson. Jack, and he was in Harlem. Jack Jackson is the one who told on John Gotti's brother, Gene Gotti, that got him that 50 years. But the pouch is little man's boss's pouch. Yeah. Right. And he got all this money. He got hundred dollar bills. And I look at that pouch. I say, damn. What is it about this pouch? It ain't but six dollars worth of vinyl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know this Louis Vuitton yeah. pouch. You know. But everybody's excited. I said, wow. So it all it clicked in my head. Now you got furs, diamonds, and gold. Now here's symbols. Yeah. I say it's the symbols that's making us popular. So I went and studied all about the symbols and stuff, and I figured out the science behind textile printing and all that. Yeah. I say, if I could take them symbols and make them look like that bag, yeah. and have them walking around looking like luggage. 
And at that time, at that time, Louis, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, they didn't, they didn't use the symbols like that. Nobody, no, Louis Vuitton, yeah. Gucci, none of them. Did. And let me tell you, all you future designers and stuff, I never ever went to a runway show where you see people, you know, the models in there. I never went to one until I did the deal with Gucci. Hmm. I didn't want to know what it looked like when it's finished. I wanted to know how it was made. Hmm. So all I used to study is technology, fashion technology, fashion construction, and I would go to all the um, trade shows associated right. with, with garment construction. So I began to teach myself everything about textile printing. Hmm. And then in addition to that, what I used to do was like when the industry was moving from the United States to China when everybody was going offshore. Right. When the unions, this, listen, this is very important. When the unions tricked everybody into constantly asking for raises, mm -hmm. but they didn't put pressure on the corporations that were producing the goods, but the prices was rising, they said, look, we can move our factories offshore, mm -hmm. which end up in China, and then still get the same prices that we sell goods from here. So all the industries was moving to China. Well, mm. this is the same time I opened up my store. So okay. now I'm going to auctions at all these businesses, these factories that's closing down, right. and I'm learning things. I would get to the auction early and walk around like I knew something and listen to the, auction, you know, listen to the people who buy the machines, see, see what they be saying about machines, ask questions. And I'd be the only like, black guy in there. I learned all about the different types of machines associated with the industry. Right. And I bought them and, and I, put, I started bringing them to, to, the, to my, my location. Yeah. So I ended up having a three-story building on 125th Street mm -hmm. and a 2,000 square foot factory on 120th Street, all in Harlem, yeah. all run by me and my Africans, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're, and your, uh, your design process was also very different in that That's you the most spent important. time with the, the customers in a way that the guys in France never would have thought of. Yeah, my approach to fashion is, like, you see designers, they come from their ideas, and that's good. They approach it like they're painting a canvas. And that's good, you know, because that, that's an input. But what I've always done was to embrace the culture and translate the culture. And how I did this is like, when my customers came in, I asked them how they feel about themselves. How do they want to look? Now, I got all this fabric, this European, I'm printing everything. You know, whatever design you want, everything. But now, the creative process kicks in. How do you want this to look on you? And we sit down, and we discuss how you want to look. So now I got all this input from all these people coming out of my community, and so this is the infusion of ideas that's taking place between me and those who want to be transformed because clothes transform me. And I know how it feels when they got them nice outfits on. So what I did was I yes. continued that process. You, you hear that, I, I just, all these entrepreneurs, you hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good, so, it's an important part. In doing that, I come up with all these different ideas. Whereas a person who designs for themselves, if, if they mess up, if they make something wrong, then they stuck with a collection. Now, I got two pluses in my favor. I got fabrics that I'm making, 
And that fabric can be anything. Once you have a garment, that's all it is, is mm -hmm. that garment. Right. So I got that working for me, and I got the fact that I'm getting all this input from the people from my community who have these ideas. But I had to remind them, I know you got ideas, but everything in your mind might not look good on your behind. <laughs> now, I'm shifting. There's a shift now from the hustlers, and then it's the birth of hip-hop. Perfect timing. You know? Now I have my personal collection of influences, all to me. So I got this creative idea. I got the knowledge of, of textile printing, right? I have uh, upcoming uh, influences. Yeah. So I got all this working for me. Now, what's missing? I needed a, a social vehicle. Right. Yo MTV Raps. Now you're on television. I got all the components that I need to be successful, right? But I didn't have permission to use those labels. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm making all this stuff, and I'm under the radar. I got all the rappers and everything. Now, then the uh, athletes start coming. I got all the black athletes and stuff. Then Mike Tyson comes to the store. He's with Naomi Campbell when she's starting out. Now I'm getting all this attention. On top of that, Mike Tyson gets into a fight with Mitch Blood Green in my store. <laughs> Next thing, it comes out uh, Monday night, football, and they're up in the helicopter, you know, over the Yankee Stadium, down there somewhere, Dapper Dan's 24-hour boutique, ha, ha, ha. You know, it's like, they're making a joke out of it, but, but now everybody, everybody knows. Huh? Yeah, so the brands say, who the hell is a Dapper Dan? The next thing I know, hip-hop is moving up, moving up. UMTV is bursting out. So all this, ten, all this attention, I'm getting all this attention now, and now there's something very particular is happening with the major European brands, the luxury houses. Right. They are bankrupt for ideas. Yeah. Mm. You know? So you couple that with what I'm doing, yep. and then it becomes known. They say, wait a minute. So what I did with these symbols is to create this new idea, which they named after me, which is called Logomania. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Today, the, today you see the reason Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Fendi, Every major brand is using the format that I use. When you go to the store, look around, look at the artists, they have logos all over them. And that's what I gave birth to, that idea. So that was the infusion that the luxury brands use. Right. So now, here's the plan. First part of the plan worked like this. Cease and desist. <laughs> Cease and desist. Next thing I know, the brands is coming to my store. Yep, with real lawyers. Anything with their logo on it. Yep. Giving me a letter to desist what you're doing now. And they all started reading. They all started reading. That's part. That's part one, right? Kept reading. Every time they come, they taking all my merchandise and everything. So that's costing me money. In addition to that, right? Tommy Hilfiger starts going to the hip-hop clubs, 
and giving out Tommy Hilfiger jackets. Uh, yeah, you know, right, right, giving right, them out. Right, right. Tommy Hilfiger jackets, right? Figured out yeah. the influencers so were. Yeah. He figured it out early on, right? Yeah. So um, now that infusion is coming from outside. Mm -hmm. The pressure is coming from the, with the brands, right? The next thing they do, Yo MTV Rap, Ted, Ted Demi was the producer of Yo MTV Rap. Me and him had a tight relationship. Ted Demi told me, anytime you want, you just call me, I'm sending a film crew to you there. Because this is the birth of two things. It's hip hop here, fashion here, this is this other side of the coin that's moving on. Right. They go to Ted Demi and tell Ted Demi, if you show anything that Dapper Dan wears, we're not advertising with you. And that's when you started yeah. seeing the blur yeah. on what the rappers was wearing. Right. So now they raiding me, you know what I mean? They blurring. The next step is to give the contractors. Yeah. So what the first door that opened was, I remember when Jam Master J came to the store. He said, Dap, man, Adidas just gave me a crazy deal. You remember seeing Dan, you know, he came in with a big gold chain <laughs> with a big gold Adidas <laughs> shoe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was yeah. the beginning. Yeah. That was the beginning of a thing. Then LL Cool J, then FUBU comes about. FUBU. For us, by us. Yeah. Who said that? <laughs> For us, by them. Do your homework. <laughs> Do your homework. So FUBU comes in. LL Cool J wears a hat for a, a photo shoot that he was doing for, um, Gap. for the Gap. Yeah. Bam, takes off. Everybody see that? FUBU starts clocking numbers. Yeah. So now, the next idea, now listen to this, next idea. This was our opportunity, right? Now I'm going to go to that next. I got 23 people working. I got a three-story building on 125th Street, 2,000 square foot factory on 120th Street. So this is all money that's going out, right? So, one day, Fendi comes to the store with the marshals, cease and desist order. I got a jacket, a, 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 three, a, a full length coat, look like an Aquascutum coat, with tuxedo black mink collar, black plongee leather with all the black on black Fs on it. Soda Mayor, anybody know who she is? Soda Mayor, she's a Supreme Court Justice. Yeah. At this time, she's working for Fendi <laughs> as one of the lawyers for Fendi's. She comes in the store that? with the team. She said, that jacket, that coat is so amazing. He belongs downtown. They don't take me downtown. They take all my clothes downtown. <laughs> so that, these raids kept raiding me broke and raiding me broke, and I kept losing money. On top of that, the most critical thing is now, you know, I started out with the gangsters, but now because of the drug culture, it's imploding because they're fighting against each other. Right, and right, when they right, couldn't right. find each other to fight late at night, they knew Dabadan was making money. Uh, so 2.31 morning, I'm sitting in my van and these drug dealers who were no longer making money, was struggling, attempted to kidnap me. I fought them off and they shot me. And today, that's why I have a bullet at the base of my neck. So what happens is, and that's why you might hear me say, you cannot be in it and not of it. So after, after that, I had to figure out, you know what? 
I had to start all over again. I went from a table and selling clothes out my car to a three-story building with 23 people sewing, five family members working, you know, in a big factory where I'm doing the cars, because I yeah. did cars, everything. Anything you wanted with symbols on it, I give you all the symbols you want, any way you want. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing all that. So all of that vanishes yeah. because you know, my, my payroll was $12,000 a week back then. That's $48,000 a month I'm just, with, just with the workers, yeah. $48,000 yeah. a month. And then I had rent on the, the three-story building and rent oh, on, the, factory, on yeah. the factory. Yeah. So all I was adding up. But my, my passion for, the, for my workers, because like, we was like a family, yeah. so even when I got shot, I'm laid up for a month, I'm still paying them. So that's one month is $50,000. So all this caved in on me. The next thing I know, I um, back on the sidewalk with yeah. a little table like this, yeah. selling T-shirts. But I said to myself, you know what? I'm gonna come back. Yeah. So I never. I remember when um, my daughter said, "Dad, what's wrong with Daddy?" She never saw me like that. I laid up for like three months, just wondering what I was gonna do next, and then. Um, my wife said, we got to do something. So I made iron-on Chanel t-shirts and went on 125th Street at the table like that there. And I'm counting tour buses. I counted 144 tour buses that came through. I ain't sell one t-shirt. But I said, you know what? I'm going to figure this out again. At the time, guests came out, right? Yeah. I started making these little outfits for girls, these little guests with the little, this little, yeah, yeah, yeah. like a little uh, cheerleader skirt. <laughs> And, and nice little tops with the guest symbol yeah. and the skirt and the symbol match with that little guess what on it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I started selling like 30 or 40 of them a day, straight for six wow. months. Next thing I knew, I had another 100,000. Yeah. You know, I'm calling, calling Africa. <laughs> right? So now I got enough money and I'm building me up another little team. Yeah. So I still can't go off the radar. Right. So my nephew there, I get my little nephew there, me and him hit the road. <laughs> all, right, all right. So because I knew all the gangsters, I would drive from New York City to Chicago hitting all the black cities. Ah, Let me tell yeah. you a trick that I can tell you about this one. I had a friend who worked for FUBU, so I knew what mm -hmm. their distribution was. So right. I went to every place they was at. <laughs> going west, and I come yeah. back and did the same thing going south. I struggled. Yeah. Next thing I know, I had all this money again. Yes. And then I was stable. And in addition to that, something new took place with the rappers. Now mm -hmm. the rappers got money. They forgot all about me, though. Right. No, I can't say that. Jay-Z didn't forget. Yeah. You know, because he came of age. And what they would do is send, this, is, this gave birth to what you call the stylists today. Uh, all the right, artists right, are working right. with stylists now. So the stylist was the mediator between me and them. I didn't like that, but I worked with that anyway. But um, I think... Um, by the time I'm getting ready to come out the underground, we had this big gap, right? So from the time, this is important, from the time that they raided me to the time that I came back, all these black brands, these minority brands emerged. But what they did not do was study the game. They didn't do no reading, no studying. And so they took the luxury idea that I created for us and took it downstairs, right? Right, right. One thing you never see me do, I never made no gang paraphernalia. Yeah. I never did anything associated with that. I tried to keep it 
on a luxury level. So they, they made it so that anybody can have it, anybody can do it, and then it went down. So between the time that I went underground and all these brands emerged, they all collapsed. But this time is giving all the brands, besides, mm-hmm. besides Tommy Hilfiger, because he's the first to peep it, yeah. all the other brands start kicking in. Even Ralph Lauren, because that's why Ralph Lauren opened up Ralph Lauren Sport and got that black model, Tyson. Yeah. All that was right. to the lure to bring us in. So now we lose all of that time while these minority brands is emerging, but they don't understand how this is supposed to be marketed and all of those crash. That gave they the luxury the brands, yeah. that gave the luxury brands time out to step mm-hmm. in and do exactly to what I was doing. Take your but charge way more. Yes. And so that's where we are today. But they made a mistake. <laughs> My partners and the best guys out there today Gucci created this jacket that I created in the 80s for Diane Dixon. The difference now, as opposed to when I first started, is that now I have a voice. And I didn't know I had a voice. Hmm. But that voice was black Twitter. (laughs) Black Twitter said, "Uh -uh." uh-uh. Uh-uh, that's Dapper Dance, you know? No, that's Dapper Dance. Black Twitter went in, right? Yeah. So the next thing I know, my son is of age now. My son said, Dad, Gucci want to talk to us. First, we got all these entertainers and mm-hmm. all these big wigs calling us, saying, man, yo, Dad, man, Gucci's trying to get to you, through us. Right. My son said, Dad, Gucci want to talk to you. No, child, I don't trust them. I have been raided like crazy. What am I going to talk now for? <laughs> I said, they want to raid me again. Hey, they ain't going to find me. <laughs> don't give them my number. Don't you say nothing. <laughs> he said, no, Dad, they want to really talk. I said, oh, yeah? I said, oh, you sure, son? He said, yeah, man. I said, tell them come to Harlem. They came to Harlem. <laughs> I said, damn, they serious. <laughs> they came to Harlem, we ironed out this deal. They said, we know that the world knows who you are. Yeah. Now, he said, and all these brands are paying you homage, but they're not paying you. Yeah. We're gonna change that. Yeah, that's great. Right? So, they came to me with this partnership deal. They say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to allow you to open up a store in Harlem. Beautiful store. Atelier. No more store. Yes. Atelier. Y'all got that? Yeah. <laughs> they say, we're going to allow you to open up an atelier in Harlem, and you're going to be able to do what you've always done, produce steel. Only thing is without fabrication, and that's going to be a partnership. In addition to that, we're going to have a Dapper Dan line and we're going to partnership on that, and that's going to be distributed around the world, and you get a percentage of that. Mm. And so, and, and that's the deal I made, right? And it was working fine. Then there goes another boo-boo. <laughs> <laughs> but before we go to the boo-boo, let's go yeah. to back to Louis Vuitton. Soon as Gucci gives me this partnership, Louis been number one for years, all of a sudden, Louis 
brings up Virgil. Uh, right now, you know that's a reaction because Gucci put me in and we got a collection ready and we're shooting it out. Louis Vuitton reacts to that by going to get Virgil and they don't have a collection, so you know it wasn't pre-planned. But a reaction, right? And that's good because we're getting in these spaces, which is where we need to be. You know? But before that, two important things happened. First, there was Gucci Ghost, a great kid, great idea. And he was doing some of the things for Gucci that I did, right? But he wasn't quite dapper there. And then Louis Vuitton went and got Supreme because Supreme is connected to the millennials. So they go get Supreme, right? But what the, what the public did not know when Supreme made the partnership with Louis Vuitton, when they initiated the line and everybody attending the show was issued a letter stating, and I want y'all to hear this in the back, stating that this whole collection is inspired by Dapper Dan. Mm. So do your homework and find out. So here it is. Everything that has come out of Harlem, this creative force associated with hip hop that's circling the planet. Now we got two things. We got one, number one is our ideas of fashion has encircled the world, right? Two, our musical platform has encircled the world. The only problem is hip hop has gotten their money yes. through trials and tribulations, yes. but we are not making any impact in fashion yeah. because of what we did from the time I closed down to the time I got this partnership. We didn't approach that right. So now all the brands got the power, but now it's, it's slipping away. It's slipping away because they're making mistakes. So when Gucci made a mistake, it wasn't intentional in my opinion, they made a mistake and did the blackface. That was another boo-boo. Well, now, I gotta represent who I am and where I come from. So I had to tell Gucci, I said, listen, man, I'm a black man before I'm a brand. How are you gonna do something now? You gotta come back to Harlem again and explain what you did. So they came back to Harlem again, and we sat down. And what I did was I organized all the people that I could find in the corporate world, those who were responsible for the, for the, for the mechanical way that corporations work, and those responsible for cultural inclusivity, yeah. so that they can come along and organize a plan by which we can have a presence in Gucci so that this doesn't happen again, and we're represented right. If you want to read about it, it's called a Change Makers Program by Gucci, and with it, so far, they didn't hired two vice presidents. They got programs to recruit young black designers or minority designers in this huge program. Now, if you look and see what's happening, the world is, is becoming a community now. People are flying who never flew before. People are visiting countries. So the world is getting smaller. People are more familiar now with our culture than ever before. So we have to be represented in them places. What people of color have to realize here, man, you don't have to do like I did and start from a table. We need to be inside these corporations on a higher level so we can take advantage of the opportunity to see how they run and how they work. Right. so that we can do these things for ourselves. Yeah, so last question, because this is such an important point that you made. When you decided to work, like, 
you could have gone the other way. They sued you, put you out of business. You could have said, well, like, we're going to get rid of Gucci. We're going to sue him into the ground. Um, but you kind of took a lesson from what you learned in Africa when you visited Kenya, the very Joma Kenyatta, point. and then Uganda with Idi Amin. Yeah, very good point. So when I, everything I did, nothing that I've done has been by accident. It's all been done through research. So when I went to Africa in 1968, I studied the, how to, they handled uh, their government and their industry. So when I was in um, Kenya, I stayed with Chief Richard Karani, and he was equivalent to like a borough president, right? And what he taught me was that like what Jomo Kenyatta did when he became president, like all the colonial land and the colonial houses that they had, he reappropriated the colonial house. And what he did was, he take this, colonial, this uh, uh, colonial house and he'd give it, it's two major tribes in Kenya, the Kikuyu and the Luau. He said, okay, you're Kikuyu, you live here. This, you take this out, you're Luau, you live here. So he split it up so that there'd be this unity. Mm -hmm. The next thing he did, and the most important thing he did, which is what I implicate and I talk about in fashion is that Jomo Kenyatta told all, because the, the economy was dominated by people from outside. Basically, in East Africa, they're Indians. So Jomo Kenyatta told the Indians that are uh, in Kenya, he said, all y'all have to have an indigenous partner in your business or you cannot do business here. Yeah. Right? So that set, that set the framework for Africans, indigenous Africans, to learn how to run these businesses. Right. And Nyeri did something similar to that. But Idi Amin in Uganda did something that was devastated the economy. So what he did, he kicked all the Indians out. And, they right. and so you didn't have nobody inside that so could take over the, the industry and, right. the, and the economy collapsed. So this is what I was thinking about when I approached the thing with, with Gucci. If we are to move up and move forward, we have to be in them rooms to see how these multinational corporations work before we can start building on our own. So if somebody tells you, this is important now, if somebody tells you, oh man, we can start our own business, tell them go get a table. <laughs> and let me see you do it. Tell them go get a table, let me see you do it. Yeah. Now what's so important about that now, say they go say, they, oh yeah, then they get big headed and they go get a table, right? Now you know, every 20 or 30 something years, we get a Powerful cultural platform. You know, we've had jazz, calypso, rock and roll, all these, all these powerful platforms by which the whole world embraces our music that we can take advantage of. But they don't last forever. Hip hop will morph into something else, you know? But now what, what's happening with hip hop today, with this, which I've seen happen with rock and roll, is that other people learn how to empower themselves with our culture. You know what I'm saying? And that's nothing wrong. And that's going to happen whether you like it or not. You know, so what we can do is when we get these platforms that we can take advantage of our culture, then we have to be able to utilize the vehicles that are get our culture around the world by which we can make money. So while you sitting on that table, Gucci, Louis, Fendi, and all of them are taking elements of the culture and moving it around the world by using by using influences that are representative of our culture. Mm. 
So that's how this works. So we get a chance to work from that. Now, as the culture moves, it changes. People adapt to it. So you got to keep going back to the source from which the culture comes from, building on that and take advantage of that. And if you don't do that, you're not paying attention. On that note. Thank the legend.